0: Good morning. It is, it is good to be with you. If, if you're new to Central, or if you maybe just don't know who I am, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Central. And I will say, it's good to be with you, even though I know that for some of you parents, one of the reasons you're here this morning is because you had a lot of snow days this last week. And you know that more snow days may be coming this week, and you said, we are getting out of this house and you kids are going somewhere away from me for an hour, and so that's why you're here this morning. And you know what? That's fine. There is no judgment. I am okay with that, because I am so glad to be with you. I love when I have the opportunity to, to be together in this way, and I get to come and, and preach. Uh, if you've been with us since the beginning of the new year, we've been in this series called Wonder Women, and we've been looking at different women in the Bible, and we've been looking at their stories and, and asking some of ourselves some questions about what we can learn from these women's strength and courage and faith and patience. How how do their stories impact our lives even today? And I think one of the realities is that if you grew up in church, if you were a church person, a lot of these stories probably aren't new. They're stories you may be very familiar with. And so I think the question for you, if, if, that, if that is you, the question you need to ask yourselves are: What are these stories saying to me today? How might I be changed by what I hear and read in these stories, even now? And, and let me just say, if you didn't grow up in church, you're not a church person. Maybe you still would say, ah, "I'm not really sold on this faith thing." You know, maybe, maybe you just came because someone invited you, and so you find yourself sitting here. Maybe you're curious about faith, but you just have so many questions. And maybe you're interested in this God, and you're interested in this Jesus, but then you see some of these other things. You see some of the things that Christians are about, and you're like, I don't know if I'm there yet. I want you to know that this is for you as well. And I think there's a question that you can ask yourself that's actually kind of similar to the question Christians may be asking themselves as we go through this story. And that's this. That how might this story that we hear today, how might it transform the way I see the world around me? How might it transform the way I see the people I interact with? Based on what we hear this morning, how might that transform the way you see yourselves? Or maybe even, how might it transform the way you see God? I think when we look around the world, it can be so easy sometimes to feel this sense of discouragement or hopelessness. We see situations that, that people find themselves in or circumstances uh, that, that people deal with and walk through. And, and we just think, man, it just seems so dark and hopeless. Where is God in the midst of, of that? Where is God when, when these things are happening? I had a friend that I grew up with, and we've been having some conversation, uh, because he's, he's struggling with some of this, and he says, Tyler, I really want to believe I want to believe that God is real. I want to believe uh, and, and have faith in this God. But when I look around, I just, it's just too hard for me. And, I, and he said, Tyler, I, I pray and I ask God, God, if you are there, if you're real, just say something to me. Say anything to me. Reveal yourself in some way. And he feels like all he gets back is silence. And he says, Tyler, what am I supposed to do when I, when I look around the world and, and I see all of this darkness and then I see Christians who are a part of it or complicit with it or letting it happen? What am I supposed to do with that? And you know those moments where you feel like you're given the exact right answer to say in that moment, where you don't know how you could have come up with this answer on your own, but this is what you say in that moment? That didn't happen for me. I I stood there and I listened to him and I just said, I don't know. But but have you ever felt that tension in your own life of looking around and seeing things the way they are and just thinking, God, where are you? Why does God seem so distant, so silent, so absent? Or maybe even a different question you can ask is, what is our response? What are we supposed to do when God seems so silent? The the Wonder Woman we're going to look at today is Esther. And again, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably know the story of Esther well. We love this story for Sunday school. In fact, we love it so much that we made a VeggieTale video on it. That's how much we like the story of Esther. But if you've read it for yourself, you're probably a little concerned that we use this story with little kids. Because the story of Esther is a lot more like a daytime soap opera than it is a nice, tidy, traditional Sunday school. The, the, the story of Esther has these power struggles and this jealousy. There's all of these drunken, impulse, angry decisions. There's really just a lot of drunkenness in general in this story. And, and, and there's violence and sex and, 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 and betrayal and all of these types of things. And yet in the midst of that story, there's something profoundly unique that's happening. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Uh, The setting of Esther is in the town of Susa, which was the capital of ancient Persia. And so this story happens about 100 years after the the Babylonian exile. And so the Israelites are living in Jerusalem, and then they're conquered by the Babylonians and driven out of Jerusalem into exile. And and if you remember, a few years ago, we did a uh, a series here at Central on the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, if you remember, is is the man who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the city, and to give these Israelites a sense of hope and meaning and purpose and future. Well, if you remember from that, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem from Susa. And, And so Susa, even though a lot of Israelites returned to Jerusalem, a lot of them decided to go back home, there was still a large group of people who decided to remain in Susa and live as foreigners in this foreign land. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. And there's kind of four main characters in the story of Esther. We've got the king, who unlike a lot of kings who who are great leaders and lead with power and might and and wisdom, the king in this story is more of a drunken pushover. And we've got a guy named Haman. And any time I say Haman, or any time you're reading the story and you see the word Haman, in the back of your mind you should have the Jaws theme song playing. You know the dum, 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 dum. Because whenever Haman is coming, bad things are happening. When Haman shows up, no good can take place. He is the main antagonist, the bad guy in this story. So we've got the king, Haman, a guy named Mordecai who, who was a Jew who decided to remain in Susa, and he was actually Esther's uncle. He raised Esther, Mordecai, and then of course we have Esther. And at, at the beginning of this story. The king is throwing this huge party, and he has all of these royal officials and, and, and friends and, and powerful people. And at the end of this party, he throws a banquet. He's trying to impress everyone with all of his might and power, which should probably be a red flag for some of us. That, that, that If you're trying to impress people with power and might, it's not a good start. But he calls his queen, Queen Vashti, to come. And in the book of Esther, it says to display her beauty. Which in essence is saying the king wanted Vashti to come so all of his friends could kind of gawk and look at how beautiful she was and look at her body. But Queen Vashti says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so in a drunken rage, the king disposes of Vashti and he orders this crazy decree, this, this, this insane edict that says, all women, you must listen to whatever your husbands say no matter what. Whatever they tell you to do, you have to do it. And right away at the beginning of this story, we see the fragility and abuse of certain people in power. And so then the king's officials say, Hey, king, why don't you throw a beauty pageant? And we'll have all of the beautiful women from the land come, and and if nothing else, you you can have this beauty pageant, but maybe you'll find a new queen. And so the king goes along with it, and they have this beauty pageant, and Esther is pulled into this beauty pageant. But... on on the recommendation of her uncle Mordecai, she doesn't reveal her Jewish heritage. She doesn't tell people who she is. And and so she enters this beauty pageant, and in the book of Esther, it says that she was so incredibly beautiful that not only did she win the beauty pageant, but she became the new queen. Okay, so we have this rise of Esther uh, from just this Jewish lady living in Susa to now the queen of Susa. At the same time, We've got Haman. Remember Haman, Jaws theme song playing in the back of your head. And Haman is elevated by the king to a position of power uh, higher than anybody else in the land. And Haman loves this. Again, people who are in love with power, beware, because usually bad things follow that. And so Haman is just so elated with all of this power, and he can't wait to have everyone bow down to him. And so he has everyone bow down, and everyone in the land bows to Haman, except Mordecai. Mordecai won't bow. And this infuriates Haman. And so he begins to devise this plan, not only to get rid of Mordecai, but to wipe out all of the Jews living in Susa. This is what's happening at the beginning of Esther. And, and if you read the story, if you listen to the story, you can sense the tension and, and, and the gravity of the situation that these people's future hang in the balance. And that's where we pick up in Esther chapter 4, which I'm going to read a few verses. It's probably be easier to follow along on the screens. If you have your Bible, we're going to start at verse 1, but I'm going to do a little bit of hopping around. So Esther chapter 4, verse 1. It says, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So, so they're getting word that this is happening, that the king has made this, this drunken decree. And, and as they're learning about it, they're realizing what's happening. That as a people living in Susa, they're about to be wiped out. And so you can sense the sadness and grief and worry of, of all of those people. People. And, and so Mordecai hears this, and he begins to go into mourning. And Esther her, hears that, that Mordecai is, is sad, and she's trying to figure out what happened. She doesn't know what's going on. And so she sends word, and Mordecai tells her what's going on. And then he says, Esther, hey, you've got to go to the king. And you've got to try to convince him to change his mind, that this is an awful idea. So will you go to the king, and will you convince him to, to make a different decree to change this edict? And Esther says, but you don't get it. You can't just go to the king. You can't just decide, oh, I'm going to go, you know, like I'm going to walk up to John and, and you can just go approach him. You can't just go and do that to the king because all the king needs to do is snap his fingers and he'll have me killed. And if we hop ahead to verse 12, we hear Mordecai's response. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done... I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. There's so much happening here. You can sense the weight of what's going on. You can sense the worry and anxiety amongst this group of people. I get from Mordecai and Esther, and Mordecai says, please, Esther, go and, 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 and try to save your people. And she says, ah, I don't think I can do that. And he says, don't, don't think that just because you're in the, the palace that you'll be saved. And so Esther says, okay, well, fast for me, and I'll fast as well, and then after three days, I'll go before the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. There's so much happening in this story, but did you catch what's not happening? Did you catch what's missing from that story? because there's something really important specifically something really important for a story in the Bible that's not happening not just in those verses but if you read the chapters before and the chapters after you'll see that one big important thing is missing God Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned not even once no one prays to God no one talks to God no one hears from God And so I think that should cause us to pause and reflect. Because the Bible is God's story. So what are we to do with a book in the Bible? What are we to do with a story in the Bible that seemingly is not about God? Or what does this story teach us? What is the author trying to teach us about God's people when God appears to be silent? See, I've heard this in in, in a lot of different ways, but it seems like when things are dark and and, and feeling hopeless, I often have or hear this posture from certain people of, well, I don't know. I guess we just hope for the best. Or, yeah, I don't know. Well, I guess I'll just pray for them. And, And don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be a people of hope or a people of prayer. Not at all. But what I do want to push back against is that posture of inactivity that just sits back and says, well, I don't know. Because if the story of Esther teaches us anything, the story of Esther teaches us that faith is more than just what happens in our head and our heart. But faith includes our hands. What we do matters. And Esther reminds us That when God seems silent, when God seems absent, God's people have an opportunity to move and act. But not only do we have an opportunity to move and act, but when God seems silent or absent, we have a responsibility to move and act. It seems like a lot of times we reduce the gospel to simply a story of personal salvation. That really all the gospel is about is individuals uh, being saved and going to heaven when they die. And don't, again, don't hear me wrong. I don't want to say something I'm not. I think the posture of our heart matters. I think the relationship uh, that we have with God is incredibly important. But to reduce the gospel to just what happens to us after we die is to miss out on what God has always been doing. That the gospel of Jesus is, yes, about our hearts and our and our relationship with God. But the gospel of Jesus is about all created things, all people, all people groups, all created things fall into the scope of the gospel. Which should lead us to this understanding. That the gospel, which means good news, like that's what the word gospel means, it means good news. That if it's not good news for all, it's not good news. If it's not good news for all, then it's not good news. And that's easy to see in the story of Esther. This is not good news for those Jews, right? So it can't be good news. But that applies for us today. If it's not good news for all, then it's not good news. If this news only helps a select certain group of people, then it can't be the good news. See, what we do right now in this time is incredibly important. Gathering on Sunday morning is vital. To be together uh, with other believers where we can remind ourselves of the story that shapes us and we can remind ourselves how to live and tell a better story is incredibly important. We shouldn't stop doing this. But what happens this morning can't be disconnected from the rest of the week. Because the church is not only at her best, when we are here, but the church is also at her best when we are moving and active in a world that can sometimes seem so lost and confused. When we are bringing light to darkness. I remember being in college and I was getting to know my wife Lauren and her family, and they invited me to come out to this thing they were doing on Sunday nights. we behind the school I went to. There was just big open vacant lot, and I was surrounded by apartments. And so we would go out with wiffle balls and soccer balls and bubbles and popsicles and all sorts of different things, and we would just kind of hang out. And kids and teenagers and parents from those apartments would come, and we would participate in this moment together of fun and of joy. We would play games, and we would laugh. And these are people that we didn't know, but we had an opportunity to get to know them and move into relationship. And I wish I could tell you all the stories that came out of that The the conversations I had at my apartment with some of these teenagers that I got to know and love. And I say that because what's happened in these walls has been incredibly formational for me. The things I've learned and been formed in that happens within these walls has been so important. But equally important for my formation has been what's happened outside these walls. In situations like that lot on, on Sunday nights... And what the story of Esther communicates to us is that when God seems distant, God's people have a unique opportunity to move and act. That when God seems distant, God's people have a unique opportunity to move and act. Uh, There's something else that that I love about this story. Something else that we see in the story of Esther. Because beyond that, Esther's courage demonstrates something profound to us that I think we lose sometimes. It, in verse 16, with all of these things stacked against her, with, with the fate of all of these people hanging in the balance and her life on the line, Esther says this When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Did you catch that? And if I perish, I perish. See, something that I see in my own life, and so maybe this is just for me, but I I think it can be for us as well, is that sometimes it feels like faith can just get easy. Like we can move throughout our lives rather unaffected by things, and we can just kind of add in a little Jesus here and there, sprinkle in some faith, uh, where it's convenient, or at least enough so that we can feel good about ourselves without truly experiencing actual transformation. And the story of Esther shows us that there's there's a better way. The story of Esther shows us that that proper alignment to God will cost us. That being a faithful follower to Jesus will cost us. That speaking truth to power will cost us. That it requires sacrifice. It may cost us time or energy, maybe finances. It may cost us ideals and affiliations. It may cost us following. But it leads me to this question for my own life. And again, if I'm only talking to myself, that's okay. But when was the last time that following Jesus truly cost you something? When was the last time that following Jesus truly cost you something? See, because we can look back and see all of these examples of people who have gone before us and demonstrated what this looks like. Someone who's kind of always on my mind and and comes up very easily is Martin Luther King. He seemed to understand this reality of of faith costing us something. There There is a poll done the year he was assassinated. And the poll found that Martin Luther King had a 75% disapproval rating. Meaning that three-fourths of the population didn't really care for his message of nonviolence and his message that, that people are equals. Yet Martin Luther King recognized that for him to be a faithful follower of Jesus, it was going to cost him. So let me say this, and I'm not immune to this, but one of my fears... One of my fears is that the American church is more in love with the rhetoric of bearing one's cross than we are with the reality of actually living into that. That we're more in love with language and jargon about being about the kingdom of God than we are willing to actually get our hands dirty and do the work of the kingdom. But Esther demonstrates to us that there's a better way of being in this world. Esther demonstrates that there's a better posture that we can take. All week long, as I've been preparing for this message, the story of the Good Samaritan has been on my mind. It's a story Jesus tells in the New Testament about this man who is going down along this road. And as he's going along, he's jumped and and beaten and robbed and left for dead. And two times, a religious person comes by. But when they see this man, they go by on the other side. Until a Samaritan comes along. Samaritan, the lowest of the low, the vilest, the person who, who, who could not possibly be anywhere near God, comes along. And this man has mercy on him. I I love what Martin Luther King says about this story. He says that the first two men asked the question, if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? See, I I recognize that for, for a lot of us, these stories can seem larger than life. Stories about Esther. Stories about Martin Luther King and and Jesus and the Good Samaritan. These stories can seem larger than life. And it can be hard for us to find ourselves in the midst of these stories. There's a story I love, and maybe you've heard it, about this this duck community. And they've got a, a duck post office and a duck school. But every Sunday, these ducks get up and they waddle to their duck church. And they sing from the duck hymnal, and they, and they pray their duck prayers. And then the pastor, the duck pastor, gets up. And he begins to preach this message. And the ducks start quacking their amens as the pastor preaches to them about how ducks have been given wings. And how ducks don't need to waddle anymore, but they can fly because God gave them wings. And then he prays and says amen, and they waddle home. I love the reminder that that story gives me, that I I don't want to just hear good words, sing a couple good songs, and then waddle home. I don't want to miss what God may be saying to me, what God may be trying to teach me in this moment. So would you be open to whatever it is that God may be speaking to you in these days? God, I thank you. I thank you for this incredible story of Esther and, and all that she teaches us. That in Esther and in her courage and strength, we learn that when sometimes you may seem silent or distant, that we have a unique opportunity to move and act as your people. God, would you give us the courage to step out in faith to what it is you may be speaking to us? Because God, we recognize that sometimes when we ask you to move mountains, you hand us a shovel. So would we be willing to do your work? the work of your kingdom? Will we be able, be willing to join in to your work of redemption and reconciliation? God, will we not leave this moment the same as we showed up? But will we leave changed and transformed to be your unique people in this world? We thank you for this moment, God. We thank you for what you have spoken to us. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.